Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with our host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how was your weekend? It was great. I golfed with with an old friend I hadn't seen in a little while. And uh, we hadn't golfed since 1991 when I last skipped school to to go hang out with my buddy, (laughs) Eric. So it was awesome. It was a thousand degrees in yours? Texas. I stayed inside as much as possible. Air conditioning? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. And uh, I tried to um, fight some uh, little ro- rodents and uh, insects that are attacking my fig and apple trees. It was quite, quite exciting here. Um, what kind but, of rodent would attack a fig tree? I don't know. I'm at my grandmother's house. There's a lot lot going on here. I don't know okay, yet. Okay. Um, Who do we have? Well, we have, I, I, I feel like an underachiever in my life right now. Yeah, I mean, we are. Our Just get over it. Is, um, is incredibly smart, incredibly accomplished. I'm I, I'm just so excited that we have our opportunity to speak to Greg Tuhill. He is the new director at Carnegie Mellon University's uh, Software Engineering Institute CERT Division. He is a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force. He's received a Bronze Star Medal, the Air Force Science and Engineering Award. He retired from the Air Force with the rank of Brigadier General and now at CERT. He has said, and this is my favorite thing, that CERT is the center of gravity for information sharing. I can't wait to have this conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. Happy Monday. (laughs) Happy Monday. Although we do release on a Tuesday, we record on Mondays. But yeah, it's a great, I love Mondays. I always have four or five days left to do my job. Friday, I always look at the list of, oh, I didn't get this all done, but I love Mondays. Well, and for many of the audience, I'm sure they think every day is a Monday, so we're covered. (laughs) As long as you love it, I think that's good. It's a great opportunity to start anew. So real quick for our listeners maybe who aren't familiar with CERT, Greg, um, and and I've I've read it described as, you know, this amazing culture of innovation. You help government and industry orgs develop and operate software systems that are secure and reliable, the center of the universe. Please tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Well, thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit about the team that I lead and the lineage behind it. Uh, The CERT division at the Software Engineering Institute has been around since 1988 and was created in response to the Morris worm getting unleashed around the planet and seizing up computers, um, not only here in North America, but literally around the world. And um, the United States government said, holy smokes, we really need to have a team somewhere as part of a federally funded research and development center team that can focus on securing computer systems and critical infrastructure. So in 1988, they formed uh, the CERT, which at that point stood for the Computer Emergency Response Team. How did they pick Carnegie Mellon? Well, they, they picked Carnegie Mellon because Carnegie Mellon already had a federally funded research and development center called the Software Engineering Institute that was focused on software. And it was 
Carnegie Mellon is the center of the gravity, uh, center of the universe for computers. And when the CERT was formed, uh, the CERT is actually the birthplace of cybersecurity. And uh, here in Pittsburgh, we actually have an event every year called Cyberg, you know, celebrating the cyber uh, birthplace of uh, securing the computer infrastructures around the world. But we've also, as a, a CERT team, we've created such things as the capability maturity model. So for those folks out there who get their CMMI ratings for maturity and process and procedures and like, that was all part of the work done by the CERT. And then for those folks no idea. who are doing DevSecOps, um, we created DevSecOps as well. So a lot of great things have been done here at Carnegie Mellon and the Software Engineering Institute and CERT. And a lot of things are continuing to go on that are helping better harden our critical infrastructure. We've spent a lot of time recently on DevSecOps, and I really do believe it is a major thrust that will help secure our systems going forward. It, it, we're so early on, but the more, as a security professional, non-development security professional, you really didn't think that way until recently. And I, I would say a lot of people still don't. But building it in from the beginning and some of the, you know, some some of the paradigm shift, I guess, with, with DevSecOps, I, I think it really make a difference. I had no idea. Well, you know, uh, there, there's some of us, um, you know, the really hardcore computer uh, nerds and techies, you know, we realize that, uh, you know, the more complex you make it, the easier it is to break it. Yeah. So when it comes to um, developing code, you can take a look at the lines of code in our weapon systems out there in airplanes, even in your car. You know, if you want, had a car that was built before 1972, it was all mechanical. Now, cars are computers, computers. with wheels. Exactly. Yeah, they're computers with wheels. Now you, you hear people talking about reboot yeah. the car, right? Absolutely. Uh, it'll clear the air. Try a reboot. What? <laughs> it's a car. Turn it off. Turn it back on. It's a car. So, no, it's an electric computer. Yeah. And so, you know, making sure that... Uh, your code is secure by design is critically important. And now one of the big trends that we are concerned about and leading some efforts on is the provenance of the code. You know, where did your code come from? Mm. Because a lot of folks will reuse code. And, you know, Carnegie Mellon, we were talking about that back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, to be more efficient, you know, reuse code where you can in modules. and Well, the whole idea of open source, right? Yeah. So um, what we're doing now is we realize that it's really important to have a software bill of materials or SBOM, because that way you can uh, better track where your code came from, who's touched it, what it does. And then as you are looking to do audit at massive scales, you know, we're, we're talking tens upon tens of millions of lines of code. Having that software bill of materials can help you better secure your code, improve software reuse, and then from a security standpoint, can also tell you whether or not somebody's tampered with your code as well. So Greg, how how do you see that working? I've not heard the concept before. I can visualize it in a second, right? 
How do you see it working when with globalization? You, you're reusing code that may have been created by somebody in a different country, which was then passed on to somebody. You're, you, you know, you're pulling it out of GitHub or whatever. I mean, how do you how do you document that bill of materials with any level of of, of you know authenticity, if you will? Yeah. You know, it's an excellent question, Eric. And uh, there, there's several folks that are working right now to try to get some standardization. There's already with within the community of interest and, you know, with GitHub organizations and contributors to GitHub and other uh, repositories. There's some standard conventions as far as, you know, what you're supposed to do as far as marking, labeling and such. So you're talking remarks, though, like remarks it, in the code? Yeah, even that. Okay. So, you know, if you take a look at some of the stuff that the federal government's now doing, and I'll, I'll do a shout out to a guy named Alan Friedman, yeah. who's been at NTIA. Uh, Alan's really been leading the charge and working with the National Institute of Standards and Technology and international organizations to do some work uh, to identify convention standards and norms for how to, in fact, identify, label, and uh, uh, secure that code that is being put into those different repositories that can be pulled out so that you can, in fact, have accurate uh, provenance measurements. But it's still a work in progress, but I'm really heartened from the fact that it's now building up steam. And uh, it's going to help the cyber ecosystem when we do have a more mature software bill of materials construct. Love it. I think that'd be great as long as you can ensure, you know, you don't have somebody for espionage or sabotage purposes inserting something malicious in there and then just commenting, remarking, you know, this was done by Joe, Joe Smith of Carnegie Mellon. Well, and that's really where you want to have uh, the, the processes and the procedures, not just the technology. Right. You know, when we take a look at cybersecurity, it's about people, process and technology. Yeah. And I'm a big believer in zero trust. We can talk about that a bit. But you want to make sure that not only do you have the technology, but you have the processes and a well-trained workforce to actually operate all of the above. And when you have that kind of uh, depth and discipline, good things can happen. So really going almost back to the old construct of ITIL. Take you way back there, Rachel. Well, <laughs> well people you process back. tech. I, I don't have my cup of tea here to talk about <laughs> ITIL, but you, know, um, but, you know, the ITIL is a, a great model. It came out of Britain and, yeah. um, you know, certainly I sent uh, my fair share of uh, uh, officers and enlisted personnel to ITIL training because it was valuable and we got a good return over it. And I do think that the, uh, the discipline and process uh, helps complement technology and you want to make sure that your people are trained in both. Right. I'm going to ask you for a mass generalization and then I'll let Rachel speak at some point today. On a one to 10 scale, where would you say we are from a, a process perspective in cybersecurity or InfoSec? I know I'd that's like we, hard. 5.217. I was going with a two. Yeah, I've got my fingers up here on the video, but I was going with a two. You think we're halfway there? A little over halfway. You really do? Okay. And if you asked me that last year, I, I'd uh, put it below five, but I think after the solar winds 
revelation and then the ransomware wave that's been hitting. Um, I, I'm heartened by more and more uh, public officials yes. as well as corporate officials as reflected in the National Association of Corporate Directors uh, conversations that I've been involved in. People are starting to recognize, hey, we got a problem, Houston. And the problem isn't just the technology. It, it's also involving the people and the processes. So I think the tipping point is the um, public leaders, you know, and now we have the president of the United States repeatedly talking in a relatively cogent manner about cybersecurity. And, mm -hmm. But we also have uh, business executives around the world that are talking about cybersecurity as being a business imperative. Yes. I think that inflection point, Eric, puts it over five. But okay, I've, I've been saying the same thing. I've been saying the same thing. When the president of the United States gets involved in a ransomware campaign and starts talking about it openly, yeah. you've got a problem, right? And we and we right. saw the uh, dark. Uh, help me, Rachel here. Dark. Uh, dark the, trace. The, dark side. Dark side. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. From Colonial Pipeline, we saw them basically disappear. I don't know if that was a uh, hey. We better. We, we better get out of Dodge or that was a Dodge disappeared on them. But but we saw them disappear, right? When the, when the president of the United States of America get, starts getting involved in your computer exploits, I, I would absolutely agree with you, Greg. You know, there is more attention being paid at that point than than prior. Yeah, you know, and the thing about it is, is we've, we've seen presidents before talk about you know, uh, cybersecurity. We saw Clinton with the Marsh report where he put out a commission to take a look at critical infrastructure. And the Marsh report during the 90s talked about how all the critical infrastructure was starting to become computerized and all linked mm -hmm. together. Then during the Bush administration, we saw a lot of work done during the Bush administration. And the president then said, hey, you know, we've got to... Uh, We've got to better secure our computer systems. And literally, you know, in the military, we changed out our identification cards to what are now called common access cards. So, you know, they had a little digital chip inserted mm -hmm. in there so that we could, in fact, authenticate better who we were. Yeah, on uh, the vendor side, that was a nightmare, but just getting well, to accept them. But I'm with you. I think it was a yeah, good move. Well, it was a good move, but uh, I would say poorly executed uh, across uh, the Department of Defense. And uh, during the Obama administration, holy smokes, I mean, uh, Obama took what was done before and moved it forward. And, you know, cybersecurity has been largely an apolitical. Uh, you know, we try to keep politics out of cyber. And uh, as we've moved forward now into the uh, Biden administration, I'm heartened from the standpoint of the, the current administration acknowledges the good work that's done, been done by the Trump administration, Obama administration, Bush, Clinton, et cetera. But there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they recognize that uh, we, we all have a lot more to do to better secure our infrastructure. Yeah, we do. I think that's a really good, if we can go back to the Obama administration, though, you have a pretty notable uh, milestone in there. Uh, you were the federal government's first chief information security officer. I, you know, where do you even start with a role like that? I mean, how, how do you get started <laughs> to set that yeah, up? What does day one look like? Exactly. Hey, you're the first CISO for the United States of America that we've ever had. Uh, Greg, good luck. 
<laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's not like I was a rookie. Um, right, right. You know, no, no, but it was like, brand new. Like, I mean, it's yeah. You had to build it from the ground uh, up. Where do I right? park? But I've been but I've been training for that role for 35 years, um, you know, through my military service. And I finished my military career uh, leading the team that uh, was awarded the Roulette Award by the National Security Agency for the best cybersecurity program. And that was Transcom, right? Yeah, at Transcom. And um, retired Vice Admiral Mike McConnell. Uh, who used to be the director of national intelligence, and before that, the NSA director, Mike, uh, who's absolutely brilliant, he recruited me to continue my service um, as the deputy assistant secretary for cyber and communications at DHS. I hadn't even thought about, you know, becoming a senior executive in government. Uh, But Admiral McConnell made a very compelling case that that's where the, the country needed me. I can currently served as the director of the NKIC, the national, okay. uh, you know, that's like the national cyber center, the mm-hmm. the national uh, command or communications and uh, cyber security integration center. We called it the NKIC. I didn't make up that acronym, by the way. I just had to live with it. <laughs> but while I was uh, there at DHS, I also sat as a member of the federal CIO council as their cyber advisor. Um, So I'd come in, you know, the guy from DHS, the computer nerd in the corner. Um, So when when we had the OPM breach, you know, the US CERT was working for me, the industrial control system CERT was working for me. You know, we were all part of that incident response and when we went back from the incident response and got into the real introspective cyber national action plan, you know, we realized we didn't have a chief information security officer. I pronounce it CISO, but we really needed one to organize all the activities because during the OPM breach, we literally had the adversary come in, breach OPM, but also move laterally across the government and you know it's publicly put out by uh, a congressional report that they moved into a Department of Interior shared service site. So when you have all these different departments and agencies operating as an independently owned and operated franchise, you really need somebody at the top level that can choreograph and synchronize right. all the security activities across right. government. And I felt like I was really well prepared and I was honored when I was asked to uh, to serve in that role. And uh, when, when the president of the United States uh, asks you for help in defending the nation, you say yes and you show up and right. you don't care what the office hours are. You right. just go to get the job done. Absolutely. I think I launched it uh, fairly well. I was gratified that my uh, deputy that I hired, uh, Grant Schneider, uh, after I departed, he stepped up and into that role. Um, and, and the current Sizzo uh, is uh, Chris Russia, who used to be on my staff uh, when I was the federal Sizzo. So we've got a little bit of lineage there. And so a little continuity also. Yes. A little bit, but <coughs> excuse me. Chris had stepped out and got some great experience working at Ford Motor Company as well mm-hmm. as the chief security officer at uh, the state of Michigan. 
So, okay. you know, one of the things that we try to do in our career field is, is we try to make sure that our folks have breadth and depth. You don't want to be nested in the same job forever because mm-hmm. you want to have the aperture of seeing a whole lot of uh, best practices from lots of different perspectives. So I'm, I think we're getting in the right direction yeah. um, in the government space, uh, but we're not where we need to be yet. Same as what I've seen in the industry as well. Right. So I, I want to take you back, though, to that first day still. Like, how do you determine your top three priorities? Like, where do you I, I know you've been doing it. You're coming in. You've seen a lot of the problems. Nobody even knows what this job is supposed to do. Initially, I'm assuming. How do you. OK, these are the three things we're going to do today or these are the, this is where we're going to spend our time. Like, how do you think through that? starting up a brand new position? Well, it, you know, you, there's a lot to think about. And um, it's it blowing starts, my mind right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing is, is you have to state your vision and the strategy to get there. Right. And then within that strategy, you put together goals and objectives. You know, the things that you have to do to achieve your strategy to get to where your vision is. And I did all of that. But from a very practical standpoint, there were a couple of things that just had to be done and put up on the top of the agenda. So, you know, I articulated the, you know, the five points of the strategy and, you know, it got a lot of press. But underneath the wave tops, the first thing I did was is um, I worked to create a federal CISO council, get okay. all of the CISOs to the table. Yep. I, re- I, got, and I remember we, that. And I got within my first two weeks, I was able to get funding from the federal CIO council because the the CIO council is chartered under law and has a funding line. But a federal CISO council was just a new initiative. We, we, we But I was able to get it chartered and funded within two weeks. Wow. And in our very first meeting, you know, I had some federal CIOs who are naysayers, they said, ah, you know, we don't need this. Nobody's going to ever show up. I had 77 federal CISOs wow. show up for the first meeting. Wow. 77. My gut says wanted- they all needed help. They needed a community they because they were all having, experiencing the same or similar type problems and they didn't have a voice as my guess. And they needed to have that ability to get together and know who else were CISOs and who they could talk with. I even brought in my friend, uh, Gary McCallum, who was the chief security officer at USAA. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, come in from industry, talk about, you were the very first chief uh, information security officer, later chief security officer at USAA. You know, and he gave great coaching and mentorship to our team. So that was pretty advanced in my, from what I've heard and seen over my career. USA is pretty forward leaning on security. Yep. And I, uh, I, I'll th- uh, throw a shout out to Gary McCallum, who recently retired in March. Uh, okay. But uh, Gary's uh, terrific. Second thing that we needed to do, and we, we knew we needed to do it a long time before, was um, we needed to make sure that we you, were using multi-factor authentication mm-hmm. on our privileged accounts. You know, folks that had the system administrator privileges, you know, the super user privileges. When we started the back during the Bush administration, uh, which was uh, the directive, I think it was HSPD 12, Homeland Security Policy Directive 12. 
where we said, okay, you got to use a CAC or a PIV card, and then you're supposed to have multi-factor authentication before you get into privileged accounts, right? And we said in 20, uh, 2003, we were going to do that, and we were going to have it all done by 2008. And they extended it, and they extended it, and they extended it. <laughs> and had that been in place, uh, arguably, we would have made things a whole lot diff more difficult for the attackers with the OPM uh, incident. So I said, look, here are all the metrics. We are at this level here. Let's get to 100% for privileged user accounts by the end of 2016, or we shut them off and just make you have to come in and have a physical presence. Wow. Meaning, if you don't have, yes. if you don't have multi-factor authentication, your privileged user account is no longer going to work. The only way you can get into your privileged user account is by physical presence. Wow! Wow! And I got so much sniper fire on that <laughs> from different departments and agencies. But what I did was, is I met with the president's management council every month. And I said, here's your metrics, but here's everybody else's too. So I, I leveraged their type A personalities of the deputy secretaries. Nobody likes to be last. Right. Nobody likes to see a red mark. You don't want to be on that list. And, you know, things started to move. Now, did we get to 100%? No. But we went from like 32% to well over 90 Wow. Um, and, you know, was it even an accurate measurement because most of it was self-reported? Maybe not. But um, the feedback I was getting from the subordinate CISOs was, hey, this is really moving. So whatever you're doing, keep it up. Nice. So those are two uh, war stories from that, that first, you know, couple of days in the job, Eric. And that's today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us for part one of our conversation with Greg Tuhill. Uh, we look forward to picking up next week with Greg, so you don't want to miss it. And in the meantime, please be sure to subscribe, get a fresh new episode in your inbox every single week. Until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 